would, I would encourage you to open up your Bible this morning to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're in the radical words of Jesus. We're in a series that says, Jesus says. So we want to look at what Jesus had to say to us. Over the next two weeks, they're sort of going to go back to back. So this is sort of part one. Next week is part two. Actually, in a couple of weeks, we will actually be looking sort of at another part to this series, specifically when Jesus is talking about marriage, he's talking about divorce, he's talking about remarriage, he's talking about purity. And so we're going to open up the scripture and see what Jesus has to say. And so we're going to start in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. In verse 1, it says this, and it says that he, that is Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And so in this series, we want to look at what Jesus had to teach us. We want to look at the teachings of Jesus, and Jesus was a master teacher, and I'm sure he was teaching on a different subject before this subject came forward. Verse 2 says, the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him or trap him, they asked this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, if Jesus' words are starting to make you feel uncomfortable, you're in great company because the disciples were uncomfortable, or at best, they were unclear on what Jesus was saying because they understood him to be teaching something that was new as it related to marriage. And so it says in verse 10, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And then what Jesus says is pretty powerful, and we're going to look at that next week. But he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to speak on a topic that, again, may make you feel uncomfortable, which it should. It made the disciples feel uncomfortable. We're going to look at a topic that may actually make you feel a little sick to your stomach or feel a little bit awful, but that is all right. Scripture has a way sometimes to encourage us through whether you want to say guilt or shame or embarrassment. It's a way of challenging us. But I hope as we go through these words, you're not going to be hearing my words because it really doesn't matter what my words are. I hope that you'll be able to listen to Jesus' words. And Jesus, whenever he spoke, he spoke as a man full of grace and truth. 
I've had the privilege of taking a Christian marriage in college. I took actually the Christian home in seminary and had a great teacher. And actually, I got my master's, uh, my seminary, it's obviously I got a THM in theology, but I have an emphasis in family life ministry. And one of the reasons I always joke around is because I, I, I don't have any clue on marriage and family that I had to take these courses because I needed to get it figured out. And so one of the things I will always remember, though, in seminary, the first day of class, and again, we didn't have nice PowerPoint, but there was a slide that went up on the screen. And it was a, a slide of a cliff. And there was no warning at the cliff. There was just a cliff. But at the bottom of the cliff were all these couples that had gone over the cliff and they were crashed at the bottom. And then there was the rescue unit and there was bandages and all that stuff. And then the next slide that went up said, why, why do we have a rescue unit at the bottom of the cliff? It would be so much more important to have a sign, and I'll never forget the sign, and it says, warning, don't go beyond this point. You see, a lot of us, we need to understand something this morning. We need to go to Jesus' words. And sometimes Jesus, when he spoke with authority, he was given us sometimes a promise, but sometimes he was given us a warning. And this morning we're going to see in Mark chapter 10, he's given us a warning. What we also need to know is that Jesus, when he spoke on marriage, his words influenced for the next 300 to 500 years. I love to look at history, and one of the things that history tells us is three to 500 years after Christ was teaching on marriage. Get this. Marriages were so, Christian marriages were so united, there was so much love, there was so much unity, that people who were non-Christians were becoming Christians because of the Christian marriages that they saw. So what Jesus had to say about marriage was so powerful that that was one of the leading elements or one of the leading ways that people were coming to Christ because they looked at Christian marriages and they said, I want to have that in my life. So one of my desires this morning and even next week is for us to go back to that day when people are looking at Christian marriages, marriages in our church, and people are wanting to come to our church or they're wanting to come to Christ because they are witnessing the power of a Christian marriage that is alive and united and powerful. So the problem we see today with marriage, with sexual purity, is not a problem because our culture is all messed up. You see, the culture has been messed up for a very, 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 very long time. The reason we have problems today when it comes to marriage and sexual purity is because we have 
walked away from the words of Jesus. Because they make us, again, they make us feel uncomfortable or we haven't taught on this. And so I am so glad today that you're here. And I would encourage you to ask your friends, your family members, maybe someone that is getting married, someone that is struggling in their marriage to to go back and to listen to this message and encourage them to listen online. Not because it's my words, because we're going to see in a little bit. I'm just going to walk us through and try to explain to you what Jesus was talking about. But so that people can understand and that they can see that Jesus has a divine plan, a divine purpose, and a divine pattern when it comes to marriage. And we need to do whatever we can to make sure that we follow that divine plan and pattern and purpose for marriage. So here's the first thing we need to understand about this passage. We need to look at what's going on. And what's going on is this was a test. This was a test of Jesus. Now, if you look at this passage, you will notice that it says that the Pharisees tried to test Jesus. They tried to trap him. The region that they were at, it's important to know, this is where John the Baptist got beheaded because of his critique of of Herod's relationship. And so he got beheaded because he was saying that sexual adultery or sexual immorality was wrong in God's eyes, and he got beheaded for it. And so the Pharisees understood that if they could trap Jesus, if they could test him, maybe Jesus would say something that would tick off the crowd. But what you see in this test is something very, very important. Let's just go back to it. And let's see how Jesus responds. So in verse 2 it says, And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? We live in a culture today where everyone is going to test you, especially if you're a Christian. You don't even have to be a pastor like myself. If you are a Christian, if you claim to know Jesus Christ, you are going to get tested. What does the Bible say about gay marriage? What does the Bible say about divorce? What does the Bible say about pornography? What does the Bible say? And you're going to get tested over and over again on radical, sometimes questions that are a test to trap you. But notice how Jesus answers the question, and this is so important for us that I didn't create a slide for it. Jesus answers the question with a question. So many of us as pastors and leaders and as Christians, we get ourselves caught in the trap because we don't follow the method of Jesus. Jesus asks a question with a question. How do you read Moses? Or how do you read scripture? I would hope today after this message, in fact, if you come and you're like, Mark, I'm really struggling with what you have to say, I'm going to say, well, how do you read Jesus? I'm going to ask you a question back. What do you see Jesus saying in this passage? Jesus answers the question with a question. He takes them back to Moses. Now, what is interesting is 
that Jesus is going to say, you're going back to the wrong starting point. And we're going to see that in a second. But notice how it goes then. And so after he asks them this question, he says, how did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. You see, the problem we have today when it comes to divorce and remarriage is that we do not understand, and we're going to get into this next week, we don't understand why Moses permitted divorce in the first place. You think we have problems today and controversy today inside the church. Guess what? They had controversy in Jesus' day. And so there were two schools of thought when it came to divorce. You see, Deuteronomy 24, and we're going to look at that specifically next week, but Deuteronomy 24 was written for the protection of women. We understand this when we understand the story of Mary and Joseph, because we don't understand the story of Mary and Joseph when we read it. Because they're not married yet, but do you remember that Joseph was going to divorce Mary before they were even married? And we sort of scratch our head, well, well what's going on there? Well, what Moses permitted was, and again, they got married at a very young age. And what Moses permitted was, if you're going to get married and you find out that your spouse, especially your wife, is not sexually pure, you can divorce her. Or if you find out after you get married, you can divorce her because she was not sexually pure. She would also be stoned, by the way, because that's what their law entitled. That's why Joseph wanted to secretly send Mary away because he didn't want any other further damage or consequences to happen to her. But what ended up happening was over the course of time, just like we all do, we start looking for more loopholes and loopholes and loopholes. And so what ended up happening is someone said, hey, my, my wife just burnt the dinner. Well, go ahead and divorce her. You know, my, my wife didn't do a good job of cleaning up the house. Well, divorce her. Oh, well, my wife, I, we had an argument last night. Well, divorce her. You know, there's a lady over there. She looks a lot better than my wife. Oh, well, just divorce her. And so what ended up happening, there were two schools of thought. One school of thought was you could only get a divorce for sexual impurity really before you were even married. And then the other thought was you can get a divorce for whatever reason. And so they're trying to trap Jesus. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? And how's Jesus going to respond? Not only does Jesus answer the question with a question, Jesus doesn't go to Moses. Jesus goes to the beginning of creation, and he goes back to God. So here's where we want to go this morning. We want to look not at the test, but we want to look at the truth. What is the truth about marriage? And that is one of the things that the Pharisees, the Jews of that day, and even us as Christians today, we don't want to look at the truth. 
What I'm always impressed with with Jesus is when Jesus saw a situation and there needed to be grace, he offered grace. When there needed to be truth, he offered truth. You see, Jesus was both full of grace and truth. A couple of weeks ago, when Brian was talking about a difficult situation between um, our gender identity and whether we consider ourselves male and female and what's going on, we're going to look at that in just a little bit as well. He talked about two situations where there was grace. The woman caught in adultery, the Samaritan woman. Jesus always knew when to offer grace, but he also knew when to offer truth. And a lot of times, we as pastors, I'll put myself in that, Christian leaders, we as Christians, we get ourselves into trouble because we offer truth to people we should be offering grace. But we also get ourselves into trouble because we offer grace sometimes to believers when what they need to actually hear is the truth. So what is the truth? They thought Moses permitted, actually commanded, sanctified, ordained, divorce, and Jesus says something radical. He says, it is because of the hardness of your heart. And there is two ways to look at that. The hardness of the heart is looking at the male's heart or the husband's heart. And his heart wasn't right. Even if he was a Jewish male, his heart was to do what was best for him. And if he wanted to give his wife a certificate of divorce, he would give her a certificate of divorce and move on. And Jesus said, Moses permitted it because he wanted to protect the woman. He wanted to protect the female. If I was talking to a non-believing female today on all these issues, I would bring back the scripture and the truth that God loves them, and God has always been trying to protect the woman. God has always been looking after the woman to provide for her, care for her, nurture her, love her, support her, to show her safety and security. And I would hit that home again and again. My heart breaks when I start listening to a lot of these ladies who are, who are very confused and they're anti-man and anti-men. And I get where they're coming from because they have been abused. They've been taken advantage of. They, they've had things that have happened that are just so horrible and disgusting. And Jesus is speaking the truth. He's saying, I know the hardness of man's heart. And I know the hardness of a man's heart. And so I'm going to give you the truth about marriage. I'm not going to start with Moses. That's the wrong starting point. I'm going to go directly to God and I'm going to go back to creation. So here's the first truth that I want you to know. Marriage was created by God. Marriage was created by God. God is the author of marriage. God is the creator of marriage. Notice what he says here in verse 6. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Brian started to talk about this last week or two weeks ago. Scripture is just very clear. 
God is the creator of mankind. God is the creator of marriage. And again, he created a divine pattern. He he created a divine purpose. And he created a divine way that we should look at marriage. So I want us to go. So maybe keep your hand on Mark chapter 10 if you want to. Or if you're on your phone, turn to Genesis chapter 2. I'm not going to assume that any of us have ever seen this before. What is Jesus doing? He's taking us back to creation. He's taking us back to Genesis chapter 1, looking at creation. But I want to focus in on the creation of marriage. Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 18. Verse 18. Notice what Moses is saying, and he's getting these words from God, and Jesus has given us the context. So notice what it says in verse 18. It says, then God, the Lord God said, so the covenant God, the creator God, said, it is not good that man should be alone. If you know anything about creation, everything he created, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. But he says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. We don't have time, but helper is a positive word. In scripture, that same word is used of the Lord. The Lord our God is our helper. It's a positive word. He says, I will make a helper fit for him or works with him. He says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whenever, or whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of heaven and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Now, again, going back to male and female, I, I got some objects up here. My dad, I always sort of joke around in a positive way. I don't know if you can joke around positive. My dad sort of had a dirty mind. And... Um, you're saying, why am I talking about that in a positive way? It just always made me laugh. Whenever my dad started talking about tools or he started talking about life and he would talk about plumbing, he'd always have a chuckle. And then the reason he had a chuckle, because everything sort of has a male and female component to it. There is a certain thing that fits and there's a certain thing that doesn't fit. My dad would always say to me, he's like, Mark, you need to have the right tool for the job. But then my dad would always do a joke or something. And my dad, when I was a young kid, he would say, hey, get me this male part or this female part. I never understood. What is he talking about? But after I started reading scripture and understanding male and female, again, everything has a male and female component to it. There is a natural way to look at things. I mean, even a light bulb. All of us know you don't put a light bulb in this way, right? A light bulb screws into the socket or whatever that thing's called, and it goes in and it fits. Everything has a purpose. Um, Batteries make so much sense. There's a natural. There's a positive and a negative. And again, you you don't put the two positives together or the two negatives together. Everything has a purpose and a plan. Jesus is saying that marriage was created by God because there needs to be a natural fit between male and female. Now watch this. And it says in verse 22, 
And so, or 21, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with its flesh. And that rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, Wow! This is awesome! I don't have to have a relationship with a dog or a cow or whatever. This is awesome. She is beautiful. She is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, woo, wow, woman. Because she was taken out of man. But here is the pattern. Here is the plan. Here is the purpose. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here's the second truth. Marriage is sacred. I've listed some books that I would encourage you all to read on marriage or some places to go online. One of the best books I ever read on marriage was um, a book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. And it, explode, it just explores the myths we have about marriage. In fact, the number one, we get married to be happy. And if you get married to be happy, you are in trouble. I, I hear people all the time, oh, they look so happy on their wedding day. Yeah, wait till he says something and insults her. She's not going to look happy anymore. Why? Because marriage is sacred. It's about holiness. It's about becoming more Christ-like and growing. It's, it's for Christians to change who we are from being a selfish person to being an unselfish person. Now, I didn't know what word to use. I chose sacred. I thought about saying marriage is holy, marriage is ordained, marriage is a blessing, marriage is a sacrament, so, you know, Catholics and Sometimes the Lutherans talk about sometimes the, the, the sacredness or the sacrament of marriage. The word sacred literally means to be connected with God. As we can tell, marriage is connected with God because, again, he created it. But it is also set apart for God, for his glory, and for his holiness. So marriage is created by God. Marriage is sacred. That's why we're going to see in a little bit. Jesus says what God has joined together, let man not separate. It just can't happen. Here's the third truth. Marriage is a covenant. And I could talk on this a long time. I'll never forget, probably in the early 90s, um, there started to be a movement. And it was by Campus Crusade for Christ, I think, or Family Life Ministry. And they wanted to get back to the concept that marriage is not a contract. It's not something that can be easily broken like a contract. You do your part, another one does their part. It's a covenant. And I, I know I've talked about this before. There's two types of covenants in the Bible. One is an unconditional covenant. And one is a conditional covenant. So the conditional covenant goes like this. If you do X, Y, or Z, and you're faithful to that, then guess what? Usually God will bless us. But if you don't do X, Y, and Z, then God is going to curse us. That's the conditional covenant. But many of the covenants, including our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, is an unconditional covenant. 
when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord and our resurrected King, guess what? We enter into an unconditional covenant with God, and he loves us even though we're still going to mess up. He still loves us. Marriage is a covenant. Now, one of the things, if you read the Old Testament or you read history, covenants usually involved a couple of things. One, blood. And so I'm not going to go into detail, but you need to be thinking about that. But a covenant also involved, the reason it was blood, it was a life and death issue. It was a life and death issue. So really, one of the ways marriage is a covenant is you partake in a life and death issue. You need to die to yourself and fully commit yourself to the spouse. So when they're up here and they're looking all good and everybody's doing their, their vows and they're exchanging their vows and exchanging the rings, what they are doing, they're making a covenant before God, and we've really gotten away from this in the church, before God and before the covenant people. Uh, that's why really in a Christian marriage, if a person is in the church, everybody in the church really should be there. Because it is a covenant marriage, it is before God and before God's people. And so you come together under this covenant, and you are becoming one. And what Genesis is teaching us, we leave, we cleave, and we weave together. And we become one flesh. That word here, hold fast, is the word I'm talking about with cleave. It means to hold firmly together. It means to become one. Obviously, it's talking about cleaving together in sexual union, but it's going much deeper than that. It's talking about a spiritual union, and you cleave together, and you become one. So marriage is also a picture. I'm going to turn back to Mark chapter 10. Marriage is a picture. I think if you read the gospel, Gospels, even a casual reading of the Gospels, you will notice that Jesus refers to himself as the groom and his people, or us as a church, as the bride. You see, marriage is meant to be a picture. Like I said, in the first three to 500 years of the early church, people were coming to Christ because of the picture of marriage. Marriage represents unconditional love, unconditional commitment. It represents faithfulness. It represents holiness. It represents that sacredness that we've talked about. So marriage is a picture of God's love for us. Next week again, we'll probably look at Malachi 2. God is really frustrated with his people in the book of Malachi. And the reason he's, he's frustrated is because they're wrecking the picture. In the Old Testament, it was the picture between God and Israel. In the New Testament, it's a picture of God and Jesus Christ and us as his church. Marriage is a picture to the lost and dying world of how God loves us unconditionally and how the male loves and leads and how the wife responds and respects her husband. 
So marriage is a picture, but marriage is also about oneness. And this is why I went back to Mark chapter 10. You need to notice something here. When Jesus is talking, if I had to pick one main point that he wanted to make about marriage, I would say in this passage, he's focusing in on the oneness. He says two times he repeats it. He says, they shall become one flesh. In fact, in some of the translations, in verse 7, it says, um, some of the, there's different translations, and sometimes something was added to the manuscript, and sometimes something was left out of the manuscript. But some of the early manuscripts just has verse 7 reading this way. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So it leaves out that whole cleaving part or holding fast part. But he's focusing in on, and they shall become one flesh. Then notice he repeats it. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. There is a oneness that is very, very important. Here's where the majority of us as Christians, we miss the mark. We think that the goal of marriage is oneness. That sounds great. You know, we want to become more one. We want to know each other a little bit better. We want to become intimate allies, or we want to become the best partners ever. But oneness is not the goal of marriage. Oneness is the result of marriage. Once you stand up here and exchange your vows, or wherever you're at, when you exchange your vows, you are becoming one flesh. You see, one flesh, even though it sounds physical, it is more than just physical. Sex is more than physical. It's spiritual. Uh, a few months ago, I was at a conference, and I heard this lady speak, uh, Dr. Carolyn um, Leaf, and just an e enormous, uh, a powerful speaker, and she was saying that our bodies are 99% spiritual and 1% physical. And she basically is a doctor of the brain and has been studying the brain her whole life. And what Jesus is saying when he says that we become one flesh, he's not just focusing on the physical part. He's focusing on the spiritual and the emotional part. Which again... This is my only little bit of a commentary. I think this has ramifications for cohabitation, for premarital sex, for all of that. Because anybody can tell you when you become one with someone, it's just not a physical act. It is a spiritual, emotional act. That's why I tell people all the time, uh, especially young Christians, I, I try to encourage them when they are dating I sort of, it's going to sound unbiblical for a pastor or unchristlike. I tell them maybe don't pray together in an intimate way. Why? Because you're going to be drawn together physically and it's going to awaken love before the time. We are physical beings, we're spiritual beings, we're emotional beings. And this just does damage. Um, I had a torn retina and I know... Some of you have had torn retinas. And again, there's a detached retina that detaches from the eye, but then mine tore off the eye. And now I can't see out of this eye. So if you're ever wondering, why is he always poking at his eye? Or why, why is he not looking one way? You know, because I'm a one-eyed man. You know, I'm a one-eyed jack. But you know what happened when that tore away from my eye? 
the, the eye doctors tell me it's like trying to put wallpaper back on and get it perfect. For some reason, they didn't get it perfect. And so now I, I can't see out of that eye. So be aware when I'm driving down the road, you see me. Stay away from my right side, okay? But uh, it does damage. You know, this Gorilla Glue, has anybody used this ever before? It's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? I mean, I would open it up, but the way I'm sort of sloppy with this stuff, I get it on my hands. Now I can't get it done. You know, marriage, um, what Jesus is describing here, again, it's, it's like a bolt and a screw, but then what God does is we get it put on permanently, and then God comes and he puts super glue all over it. And he's saying, this oneness is amazing. It is super glue. You know, some people, they get married and they do sand now. They're coming up with all these cute little things. But what, what God is trying to teach us is when a man and a woman get married, and I'm holding my mic today so I can't do this perfectly, but if the man is white here and the woman is beautiful pink, or maybe it needs to go the other way, and you put them all together, what scripture and what Jesus is trying to say is marriage is one and it becomes a oneness one cup we are united we're mixed together we are one and so here's the last point that Jesus is trying to say because of that oneness marriage is forever this is why the disciples freaked out this is why they became uncomfortable. In fact, and we'll look at it next week in Matthew 19, they pulled Jesus aside. Should I even get married? This has sounded pretty scary. I don't know if I can do it. I, I, don't, I, I, I think I'm going to avoid marriage because they understood something. And when Jesus spoke on marriage, he raised the game. He raised the bar and he said, this oneness means that marriage lasts Forever. What Jesus is trying to teach the disciples and the Pharisees that tried to trap him, there's no blank check out there for divorce. In God's eyes, you become one. In God's eyes, this marriage is forever. And the way I'd like to illustrate it is, you know, some people struggle with their salvation, and again, we debate salvation, once saved, always saved, eternal security, can you lose your salvation? And if you've never guessed, I, I'm on the, the side, I believe once you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're eternally secure. You have been justified, you've been sanctified, you've been glorified, you've been adopted into God's family, you have been seated in the heavenly realms, you have been forgiven of all your sins, you are forever God's son and daughter because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about easy believism or somebody raising a hand and not trusting in Christ. I'm talking about somebody that trusts in Jesus Christ. They are God's child forever. We should have more amens. You are God's child forever and ever. You are secure. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Marriage is to picture that. Now, part two is coming next week. I hope you have questions. The disciples had questions. Um, we're going to look at next week. But this is what I want you to know. 
And I hope I presented this in a gracious way. I want you to know I'm not mad at you. If you are struggling in your marriage, I'm not mad at you if you've gone through a divorce or you're remarried. But more importantly, it has nothing to do with me. Jesus is not mad at you. Jesus is not mad. I know Malachi says God hates divorce, but he's, he's talking about a principle there. Jesus is not mad at you. And as Brian shared a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is full of grace. And we need grace. And I'll just give you a preview for next week. Obviously, we're going to talk about adultery. Adultery is in this passage. Here's something I want us all to know. 100% of us have committed adultery, especially all of us as guys, because Jesus says whoever looks at a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. In a lust, if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery. We all need grace. James says if you've bro broken the law one place, you've broken the law all over the place. We all need God's grace. And Jesus, in this situation, he's speaking truth because the Pharisees needed to know the truth about marriage. And hopefully today I've done a good job speaking truth about what God's word has to say, specifically Jesus has to say about marriage.